0: up your Bibles to Psalm 130. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or you don't own a Bible, I encourage you to go to uh, www.esv.org, and that'll take you right to the translation that we'll be using during our time together this morning. You can track that word for word, uh, though it will be up on the screen behind me as well as we're walking through this morning's passage. So uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning asking you, as we do every Sunday, to, to do a great work in our hearts this morning. Pray that we would walk away changed in light of our time in the scriptures this morning, that we wouldn't just walk away more informed, but that we would walk away transformed. Ask you, plead with you even, to attend the preaching of your word in power, that you would save lost sinners and you would sanctify your blood-bought sons and daughters by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you're, if you're joining us for the first time this morning or you're jumping into a series that, that we've been in for quite some time now, maybe a little late to the game, we're in the final stretch of a sermon series currently, meant to carry us right up through the fall all the way up to the season of Advent. So think late November, we're about five weeks out now, I believe, from ending this series, but we're not there yet, and so we're gonna keep plowing through. We're, we're in the midst of a, su- a study, essentially, of a 15-song album within the Book of Psalms, the, the hymn book of the Old Testament. At this point in the series, we've given attention to 10 of the tracks on this incredible album. It's an album, as I've mentioned from the very beginning of this series, that the Israelites would have made their playlist on their way to the, the major Jewish feasts and festivals several times a year. It's an album filled with incredible lyrical diversity as it captures the fullness of the human condition and experience as does the entire book of Psalms so that in this great album, within this great album, you you get not only songs of praise, the highest of highs, but you get songs of lament, the lowest of of lows. You, You get not only songs of thanksgiving and remembrance, looking back on God's work in the past, but you get songs of confidence and wisdom looking at the present and the future promises of God. So that regardless of how you're holding up this morning, the Psalms are a good place, as I've said before, to go and let your soul steep. The entire hymn book ultimately pointing us to the great hope that that you and I have in Jesus Christ, the the one truly worthy of our song. This morning's track, track 11 on the album is, is really no different. It's a song of of individual lament. It's a declaration of sorrow for sin and trust in the Lord's mercy. It's one of seven Psalms of penitence that make up the book of Psalms, giving us something of, you could say, the gospel in embryonic form. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with this story. Church history uh, tells us that John Wesley was converted to Christianity in 1738 at a meeting in Aldersgate, London where he heard someone reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans, Luther's description of the miracle of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, a moment in which Wesley described his heart as having been strangely warmed. The lesser known part of the story goes back to earlier, that very same day, in Wesley's attending of St. Paul's Cathedral, where he heard the choir singing Psalm 130, this morning's psalm, setting the stage for his conversion later that that same day. That Psalm 130 is, is really the perfect pairing with Paul's letter to the Romans in that it declares that God must make a way for the forgiveness of sinners if they are to be forgiven. The book of Romans declaring that God has made a way in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's why Martin Luther referred to this morning's psalm, among a few others, as a psalm of Paul, one of the great psalms inviting us or driving us to the the doctrine of justification by faith alone, starting us out in the depths of depravity and raising us up by the end of it into the marvelous light of God's salvation. If you pick up in Psalm 130, verses one and two, the psalmist declares, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist finds himself in a low place. The word depths referring to deep waters engulfed in a, in a sea of troubles. The context indicating that the psalmist's circumstances are a result of his own sin. His iniquities, verse three, having brought him to the ocean bottom. Like Jonah, we, we talked about these very verses a few weeks back in this very same series. Jonah chapter two, verses five and six. Jonah declares, the, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You can't get any lower than the roots of, of the mountains below the sea, right? The place of of utter hopelessness and desperation. Jonah obviously had rebelled against God when told to go east. He went west and was eventually tossed from the ship and found himself at rock bottom. The first question I would ask this morning is, have you you been there? And I think we all could safely say yes. My sin has brought me to the ocean bottom, having engulfed me in a sea of troubles. Have you been in the place where you're, you're aware that you just can't swim your way out of the situation in which your sin is brought about in your life. The psalmist knows that he's he's not in a position to help himself. And so he does the only thing he knows to do, which is to throw himself on God's mercy, understanding the Lord to be in in a position to help in a high position, in contrast to the psalmist's low position. Notice that, in these first couple of verses, and he really does this throughout this entire Psalm, notice that the Psalmist incorporates two names for God. The first word for Lord, all caps, being the word Yahweh, God's name in relation to his covenant people, how he operates on the basis of his promises to his people. The second word for Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, being the word Adonai, meaning ruler, master, bringing us back to the imagery associated with one of the earlier songs on this incredible album, Psalm 123, verse two. You may recall the psalmist declaring there, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And it's it's an imagery that communicates a neediness a dependency entirely on the mercy and loving kindness of the one in authority. That the the master must provide, otherwise the servant goes without. The mistress must provide, otherwise the maidservant goes without. That so it is, the psalmist declares, with the one enthroned in the heavens so that sinners are left hopeless if God doesn't pour out his mercy. Which is why, We see the psalmist here in Psalm 130 falling prostrate before the throne of heaven's king, lifting his eyes to the only true sovereign for mercy, knowing that that apart from God's mercy, he will surely die on the ocean bottom. He goes on to say in verses three and four, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you've been around our church long enough, this is not new information. We talk about this all the time, that sinners have no no place before the throne of God on the basis of their own merit, that all would be without hope if God kept a record of wrongs. Who could stand, the psalmist says, whether he's talking about a, a standing before God's throne of judgment or a standing under the waterfall of God's blessing that either way, none can stand without God's forgiveness, God's divinely initiated, orchestrated forgiveness. As the book of Psalms says elsewhere, Psalm 24, verses three and four, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. None of us fits that bill, myself included, on the basis of our own record of morality. In the words of the apostle Paul, in quoting the Psalms, Romans chapter three, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. That there's, there's nothing that we can do to lift ourselves from the ocean bottom. That we're left with nothing but our cries for mercy before a holy God like Isaiah in his counter with the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter six, where he declares, "'Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts.'" To quote one of my favorite artist duos, "'Won't do me no good, washing in the river. Can't no preacher, man, save my soul.'" There there are numerous people throughout Christian history, I've shared some of these stories in past sermons along the way, people who have recorded these kind of experiences like the psalmist declares. So that you have English writer and preacher John Bunyan who wrote the famous Pilgrim's Progress who reported feeling like a child falling to the bottom of a well where he declared, covered in water at the bottom of this pit, I couldn't find a handhold or foothold to lift myself out. I felt that I would die in that condition. That's his description of sin before a holy God. Or how about Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, theologian, and poet who described himself as a rower in a boat trying to save himself by rowing against the stream that runs toward God. He declared, finally, when he realized he couldn't do it, he said, I dropped the oars and experienced a feeling of spinning out of control toward the brink of the falls. That's just short of salvation, realizing that you can't row your way to God, but not realizing that God's made a way. That like Isaiah and Jonah and the many others throughout redemptive history, the psalmist declares the hopelessness of lost sinners in the depths of their depravity, their sin. And then, I love this, without so much as a a pause, the Apostle Paul does this in the New Testament, without so much as a pause, he declares one of the greatest words in all of scripture, going back to last week. But, yet, however, it's an incredibly small word containing incredibly big theology. Declaring a God who, who lifts lost sinners from the ocean bottom. But with you, there is forgiveness. With you, I'm not stuck at the bottom of the pit. With you, I'm not rowing against the current. With you, I'm not at the ocean bottom, surrounded by the roots of the mountains. That The Bible declares that sinners cannot stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God without burning up in an instant unless God somehow intervenes like he did in the touching of Isaiah's lips with the burning coal. If you go on to read Isaiah chapter six, right, you can just picture Isaiah in that moment expecting to be incinerated in an instant, and then mercy, his guilt removed, his sin atoned for. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel as is Psalm 130 as the burning coal of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in our place, our atoning sacrifice for sin. That we could never swim our way to, to the, the break of the waters from the ocean bottom. We can never claw our way to God through through good works. Though there are many who believe that you can. There's a, a ministry called Ligonier Ministries that puts out a, a thing called State of Theology every couple years, and it is, it is mind-boggling to read within American evangelical circles how many people believe that it's ultimately about being good enough to work your way into the, the grace and presence of, of God. And you see it in the American South all the time through the checking of boxes in the name of ritualism, religiosity, We can never claw our way from the ocean bottom to the top of those waters. But yet, the gap that we could never bridge to God, and so many of you know this, God has bridged that gap himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That he lived the the perfect sinless life that we could never live. That he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die in our places. Our sins were put upon him that he rose from the grave three days later, conquering our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as triumphant king and exalted high priest of heaven, so that we can stand in the presence of God because we have a mediator in Jesus Christ, amen? God doesn't owe us this. John Oswald, Christian scholar, once said it this way. He said, there's a strong likelihood that until we come to an understanding of ourselves, we will treat the grace of God, his unfailing, undeserved love, as a throwaway item. Of course God loves me. That's his job. No, he says, it is not his job. It is an unimaginable, unexpected, and indeed unnecessary wonder of the universe. God has found a way, he says, amazing as it is to think of to satisfy both his holiness and his love. That yes, there's nothing we can do to swim our way to the top, to make ourselves clean before the Lord. And God being full of love and grace and mercy divinely stepped in and presented the person and atoning work of Jesus Christ to us. And through faith, to use the Isaiah six imagery, like a coal to the lips, Jesus made us clean. If you're a Christian, your iniquities have been blotted out with his atoning blood. If you're not a Christian, this Psalm is good news. It's a declaration that you don't have to carry the weight of your sin, that Jesus has done so on your behalf. He bore that burden on his back. You don't have to live in in this sort of denial that guilt is real. You don't have to rationalize your sin, your wrongdoings, your failures to measure up. You don't have to minimize those things. You don't have to explain them away. Like the psalmist, you can confess your sin to the Lord, crying out for his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ in the posture of a servant with, with empty hands lifted Acknowledging that if the master doesn't provide, the servant goes without. Trusting that as you cry out to him, that he will, he will lift you from the depths into the light of his glory and grace, out of those waters, from the ocean bottom. I love the way William Newell in his late 19th century hymn at Calvary says it. it says, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. But with you, Lord Jesus, there is forgiveness. And notice that it's, the kind of forgiveness that births reverence and obedience in those who have truly tasted it. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Verse four, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Going back to that Aslan imagery from a couple weeks back, forgiveness is, is not an end in and of itself. Worship is. The outworking of forgiveness is fear of the Lord. In the words of one commentator, God gives the grace of forgiveness in order to receive the glory of worship. Like Isaiah, we're talking about an encounter with God that that changes us, that leads us to the feet of Jesus in worship and adoration for his goodness, glory, and grace. That that cries out like Isaiah naively, "Here, here am I, Lord, send me not knowing that he was gonna be sent into a dumpster fire, ministerially speaking, if you go on to read the book of Isaiah, but he just didn't care because he had experienced God's atoning work of forgiveness in his life. That you could go so far as to say that where there is no bowing before his sovereign majesty, there is no saving grace. That he's both savior and king. We cannot divorce one from the other. The psalmist goes on to say in, Verses five and six, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Scholars are are uncertain of, of what it is that the psalmist waits for here. Some believe it to be the assurance of forgiveness, specifically a word of forgiveness spoken over him by the Lord. Others believe it to be the the hope of rescue from the circumstances of life that his sin has brought about. Either way, the, the psalmist brings a posture of patient waiting, expectant waiting before the Lord. Notice that his hope is not in his preferred media news outlet. His hope is not in the 28 books he's been told to read about societal issues. His hope is in God's word ultimately. Sola Scriptura, God's promises in his word, I hope, the psalmist says, patiently waiting and longing in faith, looking to the Lord for his mercy, for his grace, like the, I love this imagery, like the watchman patiently and longingly looks for the sun to rise. But for those of us who, who have experienced the dark night of the soul, and if that's you, I can sympathize with you. I've had a few along the way myself. In those moments, it can feel as though the light of dawn will never come, that it's always going to, to be forever night. And yet, there's hope in the imagery if we'll ask ourselves just one simple question. And that question is this How certain am I that the sun will rise tomorrow? How certain am I that the sun will rise tomorrow? Because the answer to that question, that's how certain we can be that God will pour out his mercy and grace on those who looked to him in faith. That the morning will surely come. That's what Psalm 130 declares. Whether it be a present mercy and grace, the now, the right now, or the mercy and grace that's ours when Christ returns, the not yet, the soon to come. That Psalm 130 declares sooner or later, dawn will break for the people of God. It's that kind of imagery that that inspires confidence in the psalmist, compelling him to urge God's people to renew their hope in him. Look at how this psalm ends. Verses seven and eight, the psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. There's so many things in this world beckoning us to hope in them, offering us peace and rest. And yet, it's the Lord in whom the psalmist beckons God's people to hope, giving us some of the most glorious adjectives in all of the Bible, right? It's not just the love of God, it's his steadfast love. It's not just the redemption of God, it's plentiful redemption. That not only is he the one in whom forgiveness is found, verse four, but steadfast love and plentiful redemption. The word for love here being the Hebrew word said. It's a love that, that doesn't fluctuate with one's emotions, but that's centered in one's will. You know what that means? That means that God will never fall out of love with you, Christian. That's the love of God, a love centered in the will of God. In the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible that we read to our kids often, it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's the kind of love so immense that it redeems from all iniquities. Verse eight, plentiful redemption. It's a love that reaches deeper than our deepest sin and raises us up with Christ to use Paul's words in Ephesians 2 and seats us with him in the heavenly places. That's the love of God in Christ. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in his commentary on this Psalm. He says, the bottom has a bottom. The heights are boundless. Knowing that, we are helped to go ahead and learn the skills of waiting and watching, hoping, by which God has given room to work out our salvation and develop our faith while we fix our attention on his ways of grace and resurrection. That you and I are great sinners, and yet we have a savior who's greater than our sin in Jesus Christ. The, The hearts cry in sitting with a psalm like this and knowing what we know about the fulfillment of a psalm like this in Jesus, our heart's cry should be, oh, the lavish grace, steadfast love and plentiful redemption of God, a God who brings us out of the depths and into the light of his glory and grace. How could we not respond to you, O Lord, with lives of reverence and obedience, lives of trust and hope like the psalmist in light of your forgiving, steadfast love? In a moment, we have an opportunity to to worship this God. I know for many of you, this is not new information, maybe some new imagery, that imagery of the watchman, the imagery of the ocean bottom depths of it all, but, but much of the theology here is not new. But if you've been a Christian for, I don't know, more than a month, a week, a day, You know how desperate you are for the gospel over and over and over and over again. So I I invite you to to give thanks to the Lord as we prepare to worship him in a couple of different ways through our song and through the receiving of the Lord's Supper, to thank him for the gospel in embryonic form here in Psalm 130, and that we know the fullness of the fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus Christ, that, that we can take, the two sermons that Wesley heard on the day that he was brought to Christ, and we compare them together into one this morning and celebrate with a hearty hallelujah that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 130. And so I invite you to do that, to, to worship him through your song. If you're a Christian, the Lord's Supper is for you. We take the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you didn't grab one, a communion cup on your way in, you're welcome to go grab one of those uh, during the last couple of songs, we've got two more songs. And during that time, at any point, you're welcome to take of the bread and the cup whenever you're ready. We want to give you space on your own time to meet with the Lord in that way. As you prepare to, to take of the bread and the cup, I just invite you to, to pause for a moment and give consideration to verse 4. Forgiveness is found in you, God. You're the the author and provider of forgiveness and, and that's been given to us in Jesus.